Welcome to the Anime Research Group. With so much anime produced each season, many interesting shows just slip through the cracks and don't get the fear hearing they deserve. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And each week we get together to give one show its chance, watch the first few episodes, and discuss what we thought of it. This week, Fujin Monogatari, aka Windy Tales. The show ran from September 11th, 2004 until February 26th, 2005 for 13 episodes. It was made by Production IG, who we've talked about quite a few times on this podcast already, but just to remind you, Ghost Town, Eren, Run With The Wind, Ghost in the Shell, those things. I think you've heard of them. I think we need a moratorium on Production IG for a while. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The show is primarily distinguished by its really unique art style, unlike basically any other Production IG show that I can think of. Yeah, the anime uh, was directed by Junji Nishimura, and on that note, Freya. Yeah, so Junji Nishimura is uh, another person who's been working in anime for a long time. He got his first element of notoriety by directing an episode of Irisei Yatsura that was voted the best one. I have a, I have an odd fondness for Irisei Yatsura. It's like the classic early anime rom-com with the tsundere. Yes, which means I should hate it, but why? <laughs> Lum is generally considered like the... At least in the original conception, the like archetypical Tsundere. She's less annoying than most of them. I probably just have a bit of uh, the soft spot because of the BBC dub. Anyway, this is not a USA yet. It's for a podcast, but it might turn into a... Uh... Rumiko Takahashi? Yes. This might turn into a Rumiko Takahashi podcast if we're not careful because he also uh, directed the later portions of Ranma One Half <laughs> and the OVAs and the film. And he also directed Mermaid Forest, which I think was another Rumiko Takahashi manga. Yes. Sorry, yes. yeah. I actually put Mermaid on my Forest on my list after seeing it uh, here. So there you go. It's one of it's one of her works that I haven't read, although I've read Urutsu Yatsura, Ramona Half, Inuyasha, Rene, uh, and I've, but I've not checked out Mao yet. Uh, in terms of other stuff from the nineties uh, and eighties, he directed something called Pro Golfer Saru. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I wonder what superpowers they had. <laughs> and then in the early 2000s, he did stuff like Kyokara Mao, You're Under Arrest, and uh, a show that I forgot about, but uh, we're going to talk about at some point, uh, Simone. And then I come onto the weird uh, trilogy of uh, Dog Days. You ever been Dog Days? Vaguely. No, not really. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> Bakuon. I mean, Bakuon is what it is. That's <laughs> and what it is is not good. It's an anime about girls driving motorcycles. For those of you who may not be aware, and Glasslip, which I seem to remember people saying was awful. I have no idea what Glasslip is about, but I am familiar with the opinion that it's awful. And for the second time in two weeks, I get to talk about Neo Yokio because he co-directed it with. Uh... With Furuhashi from our episode on Get Backers. He's also going to be directing uh, Vlad Love, uh, Mamoru Oshii's lesbian vampire comedy, whenever that come, is going to come out. <laughs> yes. He also wrote two episodes of this show. Uh, I don't think it's... Yeah, no, it's not. Either any of the ones we've watched. Moving on to our actual writer, or at least the person who wrote nine out of 13 episodes, uh, so I assume they're the head writer. They're not actually credited that way is uh, Hiroaki Jino, who has not 
worked on many things in terms of stuff that they uh, have more control over. Uh, one of the dot .hack OVAs, uh, Tokyo Babylon 2, and to be honest, the most interesting one is they co-wrote Yua uh, Umaso. It's, it's the one with the dinosaur. That's very, very, <laughs> very specific. specific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like I, I know what we're talking about. I just don't remember when or if I've watched it. Yeah. Okay. Well, never mind then. I must have done. <laughs> so yeah, not much to say there. I'm afraid. In terms of the person who is, uh, well, credited as uh, coming up with the visual concept and the character design, so really is responsible for the look of the show in general. Though he's not the art director, is um, Masatsugu Arakawa. Now. Uh, He's interesting because there's a thing in animation called layouts, which uh, is effectively after the storyboard is made, you have somebody takes the storyboard and then uh, makes a effectively a more detailed version of that that uh, dictates how the animation will actually go within the frame, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just how to, it's a shot script essentially. Yes, like thank you. Scene block, scene blocking. Mm. It's like the camera is going to be at this angle, it's going to move in this way and hold on it for that many seconds, here's the next cut. Usually I think this is uh, either done by the key animator who works on a particular set of frames or just the storyboard that then goes on to do it too. Um, I could be wrong about that. Uh, I know a lot of key animators do their own layouts, um, mm -hmm. but he's interesting because he gets credited for doing layouts uh, in particular on a lot of things, which uh, is very uncommon. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently, he's somebody who gets put on things uh, in particular to do uh, layouts for when they want to have particularly climactic moments, so that's interesting. Um, in terms of stuff he's directed, he's directed a lot of uh, kids' Uh, shows and OVAs, so um, something called Medarot Damashi, uh, <laughs> something called Rose O'Neill Koopy, which is an interesting name, uh, Vampian Kids, um, and recently he made a show called Urahara, which I think was about people trying to stop a shopping district from going out of business uh, by fighting aliens. Yeah, I remember watching the first episode of that. Yeah. For something that Ian and I like a lot, he... Uh, was the animation director for Arya's first season, Arya the Animation, which was pleasant. He was also the, in general, the layout director for uh, the first season and the supervisor for the third season, so he was probably responsible for how a lot of the show ended up looking, so that's nice. Anyway, uh, he's also directed, uh, worked on Crayon Shin-chan a lot, which is probably where... Uh, <laughs> some of the visual ideas in this show came from. And for the second episode in a row, the most famous person here is the composer. <laughs> yeah. So yes, uh, Kenji Kawai has worked on a fuck ton of things, part of my language. It's one of those things where he's famous uh, in the, the kind of people who would watch like foreign movies, but they might not yes. necessarily be able to place him specifically. Because, like, just as a specific example, like, The Ring is a very famous film in the West. Yeah. But I don't know that people would be like, oh, yeah, Kenji Kawai did the, uh, did the music for that. It's funny, because I think he has a very distinctive uh, style of composition, but there you go. 
I, I don't mean that it's not distinctive. I just mean that it's not in the canon of yeah, like yeah. John Williams or all those other, or movies. even Joe Hisashi. Uh, so yeah, he started off interestingly enough with Masonic Goku, another classic. <sighs> uh, and he also did the music for uh, Mermaid Forest and Ranma One and Ranma One Half. So there you go. Uh, he also did the music for Higurashi, the 2006 Fate. Uh, show. Uh, the original Man of Transfer Dragon. Yes. Gundam 00, uh, Barakamon, Joker Game, Mob Psycho 100, which Ooh. people did like the music in that. But I think he's um, famous for collaborating with uh, Mamoru Oshii, who is incidentally also credited as doing supervision on this show, whatever that means. He did the music for all of Pat Labor, or at least all of the stuff made by Oshi. Um, he did the music for uh, a bunch of Skycrawlers. That's another Oshi. Yes, and I think pretty much all of his live-action films, so like Red Spectacles, Stray Dogs, Avalon, and all of the ones after that that uh, basically be movies. so I'm not going to talk about them. In terms of his, the soundtrack that I think most people would remember before, it's probably the Ghost in the Shell movie. Which I've been, he should be for remember for that because it's really good. Uh, mm-hmm. Like when I think of Ghost in the Shell, one of the first things I think of is the opening, um, like the chanting choir, choir and drums. Yeah, I immediately think of the the shots of the city with the airplane flying over it. Yes, and that. But he's also worked on a lot of other live action Japanese films. Uh, like Ian already re- mentioned the Japanese uh, Ring films, both of them. Uh, the second live-action Death Note movie, but not the others. Um, he did the music for all of the Ip Man films. Which wasn't that great. I've seen three of them. And plenty of other live-action Japanese films that I'm sure Ian is uh, much more familiar with than I am. Like all of the Hideo Nakata stuff. <laughs> In terms of more random stuff, he did the music for a uh, six-part French documentary about World War II. <laughs> He also got his own concert in 2007, which he conducted. So um, props to him for having multiple areas of skills. I fucked that up. Is, is that like the musical equivalent of, you know, like when you're like an academic and you're turned like 16 <laughs> after retire, and so you have like your retirement conference? <laughs> I mean, yeah, but he was he's still making music to this day. So the most random fact about him is that there's an asteroid named after him. I don't know what to do with that information, so I'll just take it in. Yeah. Asteroid 117582 Kenji Kawaii, uh, <laughs> discovered in 2005, was named in his honor. In general, for him, I'd say he... I really like his atmospheric stuff, and we got a lot of that in this show. He really likes using um, interesting percussion instruments, and he really likes uh, Spanish guitars. Um, also, that... Very particular synth sound that I always associate with him, with him, but I can't really put a name to. It's very obvious in all of the things he's done the music for, like Mob Psycho. Right, so we've kind of heard, I think, enough about the production. We can go over the first episode uh, now. So the opening of the first episode has uh, one of our main characters now being on the roof of their school taking photographs of the cloud. Also, her friend Miki is there, uh, where you don't see her straight away. And these two are members of the digital camera club at their school. Like, Miki asks her, like, uh, why are you taking pictures of the clouds? Aren't they all the same? And now goes the answer, well, when you capture the clouds, you capture the wind. Uh, and there's 
going to be far too many references to the wind in this, even more than there was when we did uh, Kazugatsuyoku. <laughs> but like it's homeroom time, so Mickey goes, and then uh, but now is like, nah, man, I'm staying to take some photos. But the photograph she's going to take is one of a cat, and she can't really get a good view of the cat, so she hops over the rail on the roof, like go out. It's important to note the cat is on the roof of the school. It's like perched up on the edge, like gargoyle <laughs> And then uh, she falls, but that makes sense because suddenly out of nowhere, there's a lot of cats floating in the sky. And if there's anything that's going to make you fall, it's going to be that, right? <laughs> as far as I'm aware, every single episode of this show does feature flying cats. The thing is, normally you would expect, she, she takes the shot, she falls, but although she hits the ground, she seems to be okay. She gets taken to uh, the infirmary part of the school. There's a guy, Jun, who tells people that he thinks it might be suicide. More on Jun in a bit. <laughs> but like, once the teachers like confirm that nothing seems to be wrong, they take her to the hospital. Uh, and the doctor is like, yeah, she's fine. Whatever. <laughs> so we kind of like cut to the evening. She's on the phone uh, with Mickey. She says, well, Jun wants to apologize just for saying that she's a suicidal person i guess and she's searching through the printouts of the photographs she's took and one of the things she notices is that there is a man who seems to be in like an opportune place at the bottom of like where the wind came that saved her this is taiki sensei the math teacher and so she does a bit of digging she like wants to she wants to know uh, to like talk to him about the weirdness that happened but he's gone home to a vill to his home village to see some relatives because it's breaking for summer vacation now. We see him return uh, returning to his village. He gets like a lift back because there's no like regular bus service or anything like that. And he meets with it's not actually quite obvious what her relationship is. We think she's his brother's wife. I'm pretty sure it is because at one point she says she's too young to be like living alone and stuff like already so it's the only thing that really makes sense so back of this mickey and now we're just sort of uh, chewing the fat talking about cats and love and <laughs> have you dated etc and mickey's concerned uh as you should be if your friend falls off a roof and it's like well you're acting strange and it's just like well you wouldn't believe me if i told you and it's like the, the cats they can fly like, 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 to her credit, uh, her friends do seem to believe her. If Denny or Freya ever told me that cats could fly, I would not believe that. <laughs> the three of them, Mickey, June, and now go searching around for the flying cat. And they do see one sort of fly back up to the roof. This is, I think, the same cat from the beginning. And now, like, chases up after it. And then there's a girl on the roof. Uh, her name is Ruko. She is the person who gives us all the exposition we need, right? They talk about the cat, about how it sleeps on the roof and it always flies up. Uh, she tells him that the cat can manipulate the wind, and also Taiki Sensei can do this. Mm -hmm. uh, we get a bit of a flashback of how she learns that um, Taiki Sensei could uh, do this. She sees him up on the roof and all the wind's going, and then the cat lands on his hand, and it's, it's a bit cheesy, but also kind of cool. Uh, she also claims that Taiki... Uh, taught her how she could manipulate the wind and she proves this by like hovering a few inches off the ground learning this is sort of what sets in now's mind that the camera club should go uh and 
find their their teacher at the festival that's going on in their village and that's kind of where the episode ends with them traveling up uh there's like a wind that passes through it uh that's that like precedes their arrival and they the episode just sort of ends like as they arrive at well at the village anyway so quite a lot was going on in that episode what did we make of it too much plot for my taste (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for a show that was billed as a uh, slice of life show, and I don't know if it was billed like that. When I was doing my research on it, that was generally the genre it was ascribed to, specifically the subgenre of um, yashikai. Is that right? The right way to say it. Yeah, specifically the subgenre of yashikai, meaning healing in Japanese. I, I mean, I think it's been ascribed that, but I don't know if that was uh, how it was like advertised at the time as it were yes but all i have to go on is what people are ascribing it to it now so i was expecting something a little bit different from what we got in the episode yeah, well, yeah. people call people call mushishi yashike and i wouldn't they really do and it's not at all <laughs> i think the most important thing to talk about regarding this show is its art style and that's what it will always be it's yeah. such a visually distinct way of animation from pretty much anything we get. Like It reminds you of other experimental anime, such as Ping Pong the Animation, Flowers of Evil, uh, Kuchu Buranko, Tekken King Creed. It, it especially looks like Tekken King Creed, at least the characters do. It shares a super deformed art style with uh, an almost watercolor way of drawing things that has very little to do with how we perceive modern anime and their style of animation. And also a lot of crayon-y stuff. Like, before I, I comment on the sort of visual style, I will sort of like defend this opening uh, episode <laughs> in the there are sort of like two things I think that are going on. We have a supernatural show, and when we have a supernatural show, we never want to be upfront about the fact that there is a supernatural world. There's it always has to be sort of there's an incident that lets you recontextualize things that you'd seen previously. Mm. In this case, um, the I don't want to say inciting incident because it's not an inciting incident, but the the trigger uh, is her. Well, it's the cats, really, but. Um, <laughs> I, well, I agree with what you're saying. I think the problem then is is that we didn't have enough of the normal baseline word world because we have about two minutes before we see the flying cats. So if the first half of the episode had been spent on the everyday life, and then we would have got and focused on how she's kind of bored of normality, and then we go to the supernatural world. I, that might have worked better. And this isn't a Haruhi style. I am bored yeah. with reality narrative. It's just the the supernatural next door. <laughs> it's like the whole kids exploring stuff, but exaggerated just enough with a slight supernatural element <laughs> to like capture that feeling, I guess. What is weird to me is the introduction of this additional character, Joko, as the exposition dump sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't really, it doesn't make sense to me why Taiki Sensei would have left when other people seem to still be working at the school. Maybe he doesn't work Fridays. Like, the fact that he had already left, and so they had to introduce an additional character to explain that, yeah. uh, yes, he's a wind manipulator, and that's what sort of forces them to chase after him, whereas I think that a more straightforward narrative approach would just be for them to approach him, and then follow him to the village 
I think what I would have done is ha- introduced him before you see him use his wind powers. To be honest, yes, because he kind of just he kind of just shows up and that's fine. But then like there's a scene where she sees him in the photo. It's like, oh, it's Taki Sensei. I agree with that, but I I would even go further in saying we don't need him at all. Uh, he's just all, I'm fine with him having already left, which would kind of give now more of a of a drive and that she's really that curious that she's willing on the things she saw to follow him all the way out to the sticks. Yeah, that would that would also work better. The only the last thing I'm going to sort of say about him is that although he isn't really going to show up much in the three episodes we did watch, I do think he appears more earlier on in the sort of the like mentor role. Uh, and so I do think they felt it necessary to include them from the beginning for that reason. In terms of the like scenes where she's just pissing about in the club room with her friend, that was really nice. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was great. And I did, I did like the scene on the roof. It was just a bit structurally. I mean, the first one, not the one with Ryoko. It was just structurally a bit weird. I guess. What do you think they were going for, or do you think they were going for anything in particular with the art style? When I think when Freya brought up that the director had worked on a lot of Crayon Shinchan, that the anime suddenly made a lot more sense for it because it does resemble uh, it quite a bit in the way the characters move as well. When uh, June is running at a certain point, he the way he moves is very reminiscent of how Crayon Chen-Chan would move in some of the episodes. Plus they have matchstick legs, incredibly thin, <laughs> with slightly larger head and faces that he can easily deform into uh, various shapes. I just say my own sort of description of them is that they have chicken limbs. <laughs> yes. It's really, the thing that actually really stuck out to me about their character design, other than that, (laughs) was the fact that pretty much all of them, not all of them, but pretty much all of them had jet black eyes. And Mm -hmm. I find that a lot more unsettling than the the chicken. (laughs) It was was very off-putting for for the kind of uh, show we're going for, because otherwise my description of the visuals for this would be, it's very storybook-like. Yeah. I think this is especially true of the use of um, a sort of a watercolor style with the thin lines and the light color, uh, thin colors. Can color be thin? Yeah, and and even beyond just the watercolor style, the anime in general has a very strong sense of color for the most part. The entire school is essentially decolored as we see the contours of the object and they have certain shades of white, blue and gray to fill them in. But it's really only the anime character, the characters' faces and their clothes that provide a dash of color. However, when we then, in episode two, uh, towards the end of episode one, and in episode two, move towards the more natural world, it's all very nice uh, and colored with lots of green, deep blues, and reds for the sunsets. Even the city outside of the school is like colored uh, way more. Yeah, it's it's just a school that's essentially a complete non-space of... Uh... They're going for the whole uh, school is drab, kids exploring outside of school is all bright and colorful, because yeah, but... that's what kids actually care about. So normally, uh, what, what I rave about in these sorts of things is is use of color. But the thing that actually stuck out for me was how flat many of the interiors were. Uh, like it was just dr- like the cupboards and things were just drawn on the wall there's 
actually very few colors used in many of the scenes at a given time there's like you won't you'll barely find like a shadow or something like that so the, that combination of that and a flat means it just sort of like blends in it's just like yeah we're not paying attention to this <laughs> uh, i don't know if it's necessarily not paying attention more of just that's the style of kind of slight surrealness they were going for especially with the school yeah yeah and there, there's a, there's a whole bunch of other nice little touches such as the sun where, whereas in other shows the sun kind of moves about and we see the light moving here, it's just an almost physical object on screen that's blocking things. Yes. Which was an interesting choice. One of the best things about it is the way the anime manages to represent the wind, which for an anime called Windy Tales, I consider to be quite important. It uses a lot of speed lines, but we'll see a lot more of that in um, episode two. So we'll talk about it there. So episode two is titled Festival of the Winds. Everyone is going to the village um, to meet Taiki Sensei. It's a very remote village that you're going to have to... There's been no bus since New Year's. They're going to have to get in a pickup truck with some old guy. Fortunately, it's Japan, so there's nothing weird about that. <laughs> guy at the, guy at the fuel station uses a calculator to tally up their, uh, their bill. Yeah, that yeah. was a nice touch. So they arrive at the house of um, well, Yukio's house, and she lets them in because, well, like they've came all this way and they admire you. It's interesting because, like, she'll give them watermelon, and actually the kids play into that. Uh, they tease um, him about being popular, about how he's going to get all sorts of uh, cards at Valentine's Day. But they're quite honest that the reason they've arrived isn't to hang out, but it's because they're interested in learning about how the wind manipulation happens. Of course, they have to mention that Ryoko is the one that told them, because how else would you do it? And Taiki's not into it. He's like, nah, I can't teach you this. But Yukio is more of a softie. She explains a little bit about the, the how the, about how all the airbenders live in this village, and they control Japan's weather, and they like get together to plan it out. Yeah, it's a bit odd. I mean, I'm not sure that 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 premise makes sense. I mean, it really doesn't have to for this show. It was just like, well, think about like all the typhoons and stuff that they must have planned. <laughs> <laughs> but we get a bunch of summer stuff. There's a really good sunset scene. That was very pretty. You take a photo of the moon. Blah 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 blah. They hang out. They hang out. They hang out with Grandpa Airbender. Yeah, they ha hang out with some of the old guys, and guys are kind of interested in what they're doing. They roast Taiki a little bit, uh, but like they'll explain a bit about the history, and one of them specifically invites all the kids, like, all right, come to my house, I'll show you. And we got a weird training scene where there's a flag in front of them, and... If you can form the wind in your heart, you can form it before your eyes. <laughs> Which, to my mind, isn't a real explanation, but that maybe that's why I can't control the wind. It's the power of belief! It's the power of being a fucking kid. And they have limited success, shall we say. Then just get a bunch more summer stuff, they play with fireworks, blah 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 blah. There's an interesting part with Yukio and I believe now, when they have a small conversation about how that you won't be able to manipulate the wind if you're not in love, which harkens back to Yukio, who seems to have a fondness for Taiki-sensei, but also they have this weird sort of... I don't think there's actual chemistry between Nao and June, but they definitely seem hinting at it as a, as a possibility. Mm -hmm. 
like there's like a hand rubbing moment and blah blah blah. But we have have the festival at the in the evening. Well, like all the <laughs> all the Airbenders go out in their pajamas with the ribbons on them, and they basically like link arms around like a, one of the bigger trees in the forest while like a storm howls outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if they're supposed to be quelling the storm or if they just have to survive it. At one point, it looked like two of them were going to duel. But what about the third scenario, Ian? They're summoning the storm. That, that didn't occur to me at all, but maybe that's why. You've got, you've got to get your storms where they're safe. <laughs> <laughs> Travel back to town, and we kind of end this episode with uh, now jumping off the roof and landing by herself as if to uh, symbolize that they have actually managed to attain some level of control. Not sure why they felt it was necessary to do it with a, a roof jump off, but there you go. I think the second episode was stronger than the first, even mm. just through its lack of exposition. The It puts the discoloration in episode one in uh, a better context, so that, I think, retrospectively improves the first episode. But I think the real highlight of the second episode, which is the festival scene, because it looks gorgeous. Yes. It has the classic anime technique of the lightning storm, and every time the light flashes, it goes to black and white. And while the storm rages... Not just black and white, it's very pencil drawn in. Yeah. Mm-mm. It's even less defined. There's no sharp edges. It's just a sketch. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like like in motion like is a good way of describing it. It's very stormy. There's the, the interesting set of uh, scenes where the lightning's flashing and the characters and the flags are in colour, but the background is in black and white. Mm-mm. Yeah, this this stuck out to me, and I I was I don't know. I guess it's supposed to be like in in the bleakness of a storm, we have our heroes, the Airbenders, shining out. Uh, <laughs> well, it's like just showing their like spirit against the the raging storm, but also but also how they're kind of crazy. The kids were supposed to stay inside, but now being the troublemaker, she is runs out, and Yukio's like. All right, I'll take. Come with me. We'll we'll go watch them. It's it's not especially clear what Now's fascination with the wind is. Just that she really wants to to see it. I mean, it's it's fucking weird and curious. And yeah, she's a, yeah. she's a curious kid, you know. Mag- magic exists. I'd be curious. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Also, there's that uh, interesting bit where the uh, they have the like swirling wind lines in the sky that are like uh, strobing. Mm-hmm. Almost looked, that almost looked a little Vincent van Gogh. <laughs> that, that's a recurring yeah. thing they do throughout the episodes, and they yeah. have like almost one specific burst of wind where the lines representing the wind are colored in, and they're kind of like shifting between the colors of the rainbow, the camera's following it. They've, they've done a lot of interesting stuff with the wind. One of them is the camera following the wind thing that you just mentioned, but um, for the use of like the way you show the, the way you show wind is by other things moving in it. They usually go for sorts of like strings going in the air to sort of reset to uh, yeah. symbolize it, or waves on the grass. Mm-hmm. Or the character's hair. I felt that the use of like a rainbow col- uh, of rainbow coloring made it actually remind me of the opening to the Perfect Insider. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they seem to have, at least in regards to the wind, they've got like a few like specific techniques that they're going to use and keep going back to. Mm-hmm. And I think they're doing a good job of it, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. 
In regards to the plots, I mean, Ian, Ian's giving you the rundown, but there isn't really much that actually happens. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. That's what the point of this kind of show is. It's just supposed to be a nice ride where you're along for the pretty visuals and fun moment with no world-changing events. Which is why the like stuff with uh, Taiki and uh, what is her name, Yukio, uh, feels a bit out of place. Yeah, like it's supposed to be the like children, children's imagination and uh, exploring mundane everyday life, or indeed uh, slightly weird supernatural stuff uh, type show. So having their like semi-adult drama in there feels a bit odd. Yeah, so like we go from. I, I want to master the wind, so you've got to believe, to uh, my dead brother's wife looks kind of hot. Maybe I've got something going on with her, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's, a, it's especially weird, because I can't imagine she's going to show up much, given that the, this is her house in the village of the Airbenders, and yes. yet this show is going to be set in the city where Taiki works, and where he's only returned to this town for the fact. There's also an odd shot in the episode where we really heavily zoom in to Yukio's lips and yes. focus on the finger going on them. It's like an outlier, because I wouldn't quite call it fan service. It's But it is way more sexual than anything else. Yes. I'm not going to lie, I thought he was going to put his finger all the way in. Yeah. <laughs> yes, me too. I think this is Jinji uh, uh, Nishimura being a weirdo based on some of the other stuff he's directed. Because he did, he did specifically direct this episode. There was a, one other scene I, we, I that we really liked, which was the evening scene where they are like watching the sunset they yeah. do this interesting thing where they keep the things in the foreground as just plain black and all the coloring is in the background my mind immediately went to like a parallax scroll image where if the camera yeah. moves slightly to the left that's what we're gonna get because it, it was as Ian said there's the layers were placed really nicely we have the road in the middle of the image with the characters on it the black foreground we have a little bit more colored a second layer of distance with the trees and stuff and then we have the distant mountain and the gorgeous sunset the parallax thing is actually like a good call because we see this when there's water on the ground mm -hmm. uh you'll often just see like the camera sort of go by and because of the skies reflected in it, the ground seems to be moving much f faster. Well, mm -hmm. Because like it's as if the sky is like just underneath the ground. I think the other scene me and Ian really liked was at the beginning of the episode where the three kids are in the guy's truck and it's like a long distance shot. The image is entirely still and we just see the truck moving through it like in black and white. And we compared it to an almost pop-up book where you move the truck by hand. Like, it, was, it was a good moment. I, I I like the scene where they're uh, playing with sparklers because they represent it as the like shiny little orange balls of light on the ground. Mm -hmm. It's nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a very easy thing to do is uh, have like the sky be under it. That's also one of the scenes where the contrast between the like adults and them works a little bit because they're just fucking about with sparklers and it's all pretty and they're inside in like the kind of harsh lighting while he's doing math problems. Yeah, yeah. Although, but then they talk about their uh, adult issues and that doesn't really work. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. I think in most sort of like, I guess, hidden magic shows, do as I want to call it, the like mastering of your power is stuff that tends to take a lot longer and it's a much greater focus. I'm just thinking about, I don't know, like the Tales of Earthsea, where it's just a whole chapter explaining about how you have to learn all the names of everything in the world. Or oh, Aragons like that, or... Uh... 
but they don't think that this is important for this show. I, I get, like I say, I believe that the that Taiki is going to continue to get guidance on them, but for now they're just like, yeah, move on. And so we move on to episode three. Episode three is called Running Girl, and this is a much more slice of lifey episode. One of the teachers, um, it, I don't think it's an one that we know, is complaining about about the digital camera club and how well it's time to give them their like portion of the budget for the next so on so on and he's like well you should really be called the printing club because all of your <laughs> expenses are printing um mickey and now talk all about um the club about like what they do about how like there's only like two members in their club uh, actually the school in general seems to be very small it, it, i think at one point they mentioned there's only like three classes of about 35 people so we're looking at only about 100 people in the school which is a bit odd because in the other shots we see of the town, it looks like a fairly large town. Yeah, I don't think it's. I, don't, I think it's just this school is tiny. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's like on life support. Maybe that maybe that explains why they only have two uh, club members. Because as we know from every other anime in the world, you need to have five club members to make a club. But one of the cl things they mention while they're discussing is the Athletics Club, which is the only club with even fewer members than they have with only one member. <laughs> they have been asked, uh, I think, by an athletics association to take photo uh, photographs of the of the school's athletics club for their newsletter. And so they're like, well, let's go meet uh, her and see if she's OK with it. And we meet this girl, Atsuko. She's cool with it. Uh, she wants to know how you pose, which is not quite what they were after, I, I suspect. And but they they stop her and they're like, "Well, we should really get like photographs of you running." And that makes more sense. That makes more sense. Like you're doing club activities. We we need you doing the club activities. And it's just a bit of a walk through town with her for a while. They get to know her a little bit. I guess at this point, it's not surprising when she says that her favorite part of running is the wind. <laughs> Actually, Atsuko doesn't make a very good first impression on me because she's very much about the humble brag. Yeah. Uh, all the photos I of me thus far were of me crossing the finish line. <laughs> uh, I have won, yeah, I've won such and such a contest, even against adults, etc. And it's like, cool. <laughs> Next. <laughs> But they then get onto the slice of life section where it's just all their attempts to take photographs of her running. They try to do it while they're standing still and she's running. That does not produce good results. They try running along her. That gives them really bad angles and it's blurry. She looks kind of ugly in it, etc., etc. So the next day they have a, a brainwave. They, one of them uh, will ride a bike and the other will be sitting on the back of the bike taking a photograph behind them. And that seems to be working okay. They can get some photographs of, but neither of them have the stamina. Atsuko catches up with the bike pretty quickly. Uh, and when they swap over, uh, now has never had someone on the back of their bike while she's driving it and just basically is like, I can't do this. <laughs> So they have their next brainwave, which is they go to a hill, and they're like, well, the, the hill's going to do all the work. We can just concentrate on taking the photograph. But the police are there, and 
that doesn't seem like a good thing to do in front of a police officer. Mickey's just like, it's okay, I'll gamberize <laughs> and just pedal harder. It's part of my club duty. And they eventually get like a good bunch of photographs on her. We get the Kira Kira, Sparkle Sparkle, we get the wind going behind Atsuko as she runs. One thing we haven't mentioned though, uh, is that there's been an old woman, well, not that old, like middle-aged, who keeps walking in front of the camera in the foreground. <laughs> Ian was complaining a lot about her during the episode. <sighs> and the reason I bring her up is, after they take these photographs, they submit it to a photograph competition that is oddly specialized to photographs of people running. <laughs> And they come second. Uh, Atsuko, by the way, comes first in her race, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but this old woman uh, has apparently secretly been taking photographs of all three of them, and she wins the competition. Which I think is illegal. Uh, probably. Because she probably wouldn't have been allowed to just take the pictures of the three of them and submit it to a competition without their consent. Which they most assuredly did not give because they're really surprised when they see the winning picture. I don't know enough about photographing laws to say one way or the other. Yes. <laughs> I think the fact that they're minors probably makes uh, it... That probably makes it a lot weirder. But yeah, the old woman at the end is like, well, I won, but here, you can have this, and gives them some photographs of them. They're yes. really nice photographs. Don't tell anyone I took them. <laughs> Right, so, third episode. Go. <laughs> what did we think? I think it's definitely the strongest of the three, or at least it's the one I enjoyed the most. It's the one where it's it's settling into what it's actually going to be for the rest of the show, I think, uh, mm -hmm. which is a series of um, sort of slice-of-life <laughs> slice escapades with, um, with some wind supernatural stuff thrown into. And presumably they'll do some... Uh, more stuff with the wind in later episodes because it didn't really come up that much in this other than uh, in how it relates to Atsuka running which I mean that yeah. looked nice it just seems to be like a metaphor for everything that's good in the world or something I don't know <laughs> it's like, childhood it's a... uh, exploration and imagination I mean we like this therefore the wind has to be mentioned and whatever. eventually me and Ian will release a, uh, a podcast about how we would make a one-to-one -one Yotsuba anime but that's for the future. And I don't know why you put it in there because it didn't really fit with the conversation. But there it was go. the it was the childhood innocence bit. Okay. Childhood innocence, childhood innocence and exploration. I think that sounds up to that. I mean, I'm not. I, I, it gave me the warm feeling inside when I yeah. roll, when I that, I that I which is what I watch anime for and mm -hmm. never get anymore because no one makes the, the slice of life shows I want. They only make the hobby shows, which I also want, but for different reasons. <laughs> like the scenes um, where um, uh, now and Mickey are just hanging out, even if they're like are actually trying to do something and just talking about garbage is is pleasant. We essentially, what Ian I think is trying to say is we don't get enough arias and we get maybe too many Euro camps, which I'm fine well, with because I love Euro camp. Uh, Euro camp is more of an aria than a um, <laughs> than a <bakua. laughs> We just need less stuff to happen in anime. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I want. Less 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 stuff. More just nothing. Let's put all the stuff that is happening into whatever trigger show is currently running, and we and everybody else can slow down a bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the same. The animation had the same strengths it had in the um, in the previous episode. Well, we haven't really talked about the animation itself that much, at least when it comes to the characters. And I, I have to say, it was better than I expected. There was a lot of quite fluid uh, character acting in the first episode. I was worried there was there was going to be a lot more off model stuff because from whatever the established model was because they're so malleable that occasionally we just get very weird looking character designs. But most most times it it looked fairly consistent with what it was trying to be. Yeah, as Ian said, they had an aesthetic and they pretty much stuck to it consistently throughout. It was. <laughs> It, like, I mean, in terms of the backgrounds, I had very little to complain about. I'm not a great fan of the character design uh, choices they made. Like, it has the the girl's last tour style of face that's a bit too angular to be unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I like that. I like that they're, like, ugly cute instead of moe cute, if that <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Ugly cute is a, is, a, is, a good, is a good way to phrase it. They've actually went for this sort of childish aesthetic in a bunch of places. Like when you see the uh, name of the, the the like logo stylizing of the name, instead of it being like calligraphy, it's like seven year old Ian wrote it. On on the music side of things, well, you were talking a lot initially about how great Kuwata um, Kanji is. Like, I I mostly felt like it was just fine in this show. I really liked it. I I, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I expected as much because this feels like the kind of music uh, called Starling Summon anime you would like based on other shows you've enjoyed in the past. I mean, you say that, but... I, yeah. I really need to stop <laughs> saying these things because I always say them and every time I just get a... You I say, say that. You say that. Yeah. I'm never going to say things again. Well, I really liked Taku, I really liked Taku Iwasaki from last week. Uh, and that music's nothing like this. There was no point in the anime where I paused like while watching and I was like, oh yeah, that, that music's really nice. I, I really like that specific piece. How about you? I mean, I had that a bunch of times. Um, but more in a sort of, yes, I would listen to this <laughs> way than a, oh, this really stands out. It's not my favorite Kenji Kawai soundtrack, but a lot of the like atmospheric stuff was really nice. You're not going to like this comparison, but... I want you to like think back to how Durara Ra does its music. Where it's just like short little pieces of like one or two instruments. That was kind of the vibe I got at times uh, from this. It's been too long, if I'm, I'll be honest. I don't really remember the Durara Ra sound uh, OST all that much. I remember the opening, but that's about it. Yeah, likewise. Okay, then you're not going to be offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like minimalist music anyway, so on the sound design fine. <laughs> I I skipped uh, forward my sentence. On the sound design front, okay. There was yeah. only one thing I noticed, which was the watermelon cutting. They used some odd sound effects for the cutting. Yes, that was a little strange. Especially because otherwise the sound effects were uh, I mean, pretty much just grounded real-life sound effects, if that makes sense. Including the cat noises. I really appreciated that they made actual cat noises. And with that, I mean, Ian, do you have anything to say about like either the opening or the ending? The ending and opening are interesting in that, as far as I can tell, this is the performer's only anime credit for both. 
the opening is uh, called Kazinoshi or Windy Tales, performed by you. That's lowercase y, lowercase u, uppercase u. Visually, I would say it's it's just like a small like microcosm of what we're gonna get. It's your usual like school scenes, panning cameras, Atsuko looking at a cat who is eating cat food from a. <laughs> from a, a thing that says cat food on it. It's a nice, soft piano accompanying. A little bit of strings come in later, which I like. I felt it was appropriate. Yeah. The ending, on the other hand, not so much. Uh, yeah. The ending theme is called uh, Yuhi no Irodake, or Only the Color of the Setting Sun. It's by Windy S. God, is this not the right song for this anime? Yeah. It it feels like the opening for uh, a children's show in the style of Mitsuboshi Colors, like a very optimistic, let's go around the city and get into trouble. Or even the ending for one of those shows. Yeah, yeah, it, it's very upbeat and high energy. It was weird because I thought when they, they, they like the opening like bars, um, of the like metallic percussion sort of came in. I was like, yeah, they're going to do the same sort of thing. And it's like, nope, nope, not doing this. Yeah. Uh, whereas visually, the ending is exactly what I, what I expect from an ending. Yeah, it's yeah. mostly uh, city scenes and sky scenes slowly fading in and out. Some of them are quite realistic. It's not entirely clear if they're real or not. I think they might be. Some of them are definitely photos. And then in episode three, they slightly changed up the ending by having some of the characters appear throughout it. No, I think that's a consequence of the weird broadcast schedule of this show. Oh, maybe. Because um, the first two episodes of this were broadcast on the same day in September, and episodes three and four were broadcast on the same day in October, and so on and so on until the final three episodes are broadcast in uh, February the following year. So that's an interesting release schedule, to say the least. Maybe it's probably good, to be honest, because it probably allowed them more time to work on uh, all of the episodes. Yeah, uh, I guess what if while we're playing uh, trivia section early, uh, <laughs> this these two endings, the ones by Windy S and the one by you, this seems to be their only anime performing credit. For you, we we did find like an ANN thing that sort of seemed to indicate that they had done voice work. But the more I looked into it, the more it seemed that they were referring to someone uh, I think called uh, Tanaka Yu. Uh, whereas I actually think uh, Tanaka Yuko. Whereas I think this person has actually got the name uh, Goda Yuko. Well, because I found like their actual <laughs> discography stuff, and I couldn't find any like voice work. Windy S. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's supposed to be the voice cast, but I couldn't get any confirmation of that. I've not, I, I've not been the one to do this before, but uh, with all of that done, uh, it's time for us to decide what we thought of it. So, Denny, you're the first one on the table. How many Pepsi, which is very close to Bepis, uh, <laughs> would you give Fujin Monogatari? I think it's a 3.5 for me. It had some really nice animation and some very strong art design. And while I wasn't the biggest fan of the first two episodes, the third episode um, was good enough to bring me around on it and push it up to 3.5. I, I actually really enjoyed the show. And while it's not generally the kind of anime I like to watch, if you're in the mood for it, for that kind of slow burn, just nice thing when nothing happens, then it's certainly a good show. 
How about you, Ian? I mean, yeah, this is the kind of show I watch, the show where nothing really happens, and I'm satisfied. <laughs> is it good? Is it average? It's certainly better than your average. Three, three and a half is fair. I'm not quite sure uh, which of the two. <laughs> That's okay. We've put in... Danny and I have put in something slash something plenty of times, so... So, so yeah, I'm 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 happy to say to say like I like it more than I like your average show, uh, but it's uh, like a, I think everything we've I've I wanted to say has already been covered. So, how about you then, Freya? For me, I'm about to sound stupid. Uh, I kind of really vibed with this show uh, today. I mean, it's partly because I'm uh, kind of tired, to be honest, but. It was, for the most part, very relaxing, and I really liked the visual style and how they represent the wind and how they represent uh, childhood imagination. Um, I thought the first episode had too much plot, and I don't really like what they're doing with the adult characters, and June was a complete non-entity. But I really liked everything else. And we also haven't talked about the cats because they didn't really do anything, but they were they were nice enough. So for me, it's a three and a half to four, which is the highest rating I've given since Thunderbolt Fantasy. I definitely uh, think we all agree that the first episode, while I understand why they feel it is necessary, is the weakest. Yeah. So, I mean, we've already given some trivia, uh, but Denny, do you have any other trivia for us? Usually we wrap up our trivia before giving our ratings, but this week I've got a more unique piece of trivia for you guys. This show was spawned by an otherwise completely unknown writer, Otari Minami. I could not find uh, anything on them while I was doing my research, and Freya wasn't able to either, who won anime proposal context, which eventually resulted in the creation of this show. And that just kind of makes me want to raise the question, if you had to submit an anime proposal to a contest, what would it be? Okay, so uh, I joked that we do a healing anime where it's actually about healing. So think Aria, but they're nurses. <laughs> or actually doctors, because it would it's actually kind of sexist. It goes straight to nurses. Not if you have both female, male, and other non-female and male people as nurses. Right, but it'd be a healing anime, so I feel like we would only cast women. <laughs> nah, not these days. I think that would be like an interesting take on that particular genre. Right, how about you, Freya? What's your anime concept? Uh, so I have two things. Uh, the first one is I want I want to suggest having an anime about the life of uh, Fusaku, Fusako Shigenobu, the um, former leader of the now disbanded Japanese Red Army. And uh, her, she's still alive, and her uh, exploits in the Middle East, directed by Sayo Yamamoto. Very specific concept, but I like it. Uh, the other one is I want to have Ikahara supervise a uh, a show where he like uh, gets uh, queer writers to write every episode and make it an episodic story about queer stuff in Japan. There's my two. <laughs> As for me, I'm going for something a bit more generic, but something I've I've thought about for years occasionally, and it feels like something that would have uh, that AG from Bakuman would have come up with, namely a periodic table fighting manga, uh, shonen battle manga, 
where each one of the casts gets a power based on the element, and then they all have to battle it out till one of them for one of them to become the top element. Now I know what everyone's thinking. Doesn't this sound like Seika no Quasar? But unfortunately, Seika no Quasar doesn't actually exist. So no, it doesn't. <laughs> all that breastfeeding is just an illusion. It's not real. So I, I, my idea is totally original. And with that, Ian, what will be what will we be watching next week? Well, next time, Galaxy Express 999. Going all the way back. We're the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast coming out every Thursday, more or less. If you'd like to tell us what you thought of the show or suggest something for future shows, you can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs>